0: You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, these podcasts are at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works Volume 271 by Rudolf Steiner entitled Art and Theory of Art. Translated by Dorot Winter and Clifford Venom, composed of essays and lectures. I am on section 11.7, which is the seventh of eight lectures and the eleventh section in the book. The title of this lecture is The Suprasensory Origin of Art, given in Dornach on September 12, 1920. What Humanity Needs to Acquire as regards the necessities of evolution, is a broadening of consciousness in all spheres of life. Today, humanity lives in such a way that whatever it carries out, whatever it does, actually merely connects to events between birth and death. Concerning everything that takes place in existence, one only asks about what happens between birth and death. To restore health to our lives, it will be essential That more is considered than this span of time in life, which we spend in very special circumstances. Our life includes what we are between birth and death, and also what we are and what we do between death and a new birth. Today, in our materialistic age, one has little consciousness of the life we have had between death and birth before we descended into this life through birth or conception. And in turn, one is not conscious of how, in this life, here in the physical body, things take place that play into the life we lead after death. Today we would like to point out certain things that will be able to show how certain cultural realms will take on a different relationship to human life, because human consciousness will and must expand into life in supersensory worlds. I believe a certain question arises, when we consider the entire scope of our artistic life. Today, let us look at suprasensory life from this perspective. Something will become evident that later on will also be valuable in examining social life. We know that essentially the actual high arts are sculpture, architecture, painting, poetry, music. And let us add something like eurythmy to these arts, simply out of certain foundations of anthroposophical life and knowledge. The question I mean, which might arise for someone who contemplates the artistic life, is what is the positive, the actual reason why we bring the arts into life? Only in a materialistic age is art actually related to the immediate reality of what proceeds between birth and death. In this materialistic age, however, we have forgotten the suprasensory origin of art, and consider more or less only what can be copied in outer sensory nature. Only someone who truly has a deeper feeling for nature, on the one hand, and art, on the other, will take issue with this copying of nature in art. For the question must indeed arise ever and again, can, for example, the best landscape painter somehow conjure up a natural landscape on his canvas? Whoever is not ignorant will, even in the presence of a really well-conceived naturalistic landscape, have to feel what I expressed in the prologue to my first mystery drama titled Portal of Initiation, C.W. 14. Namely, that we will never attain to nature by copying nature. For someone with superior feeling naturalism will prove to be displeasing. Such a person will most certainly be able to consider as justified only that element in art which in some way goes beyond naturalism, which attempts, at least in the manner of its portrayal, to provide something more than what nature alone can present to us. But how do we, as human beings, manage even to cultivate art? Why is it that in sculpture and poetry, we go beyond nature. Whoever gains a sense for cosmic connections will see how, for example, sculpture attempts in its own particular way to capture the human form, how the attempt is made to bring what is human to expression in the shaping of the form, how we cannot simply embody the human form as it appears to us in the natural human being, infused with inner ensolment, with the incarnadine, with what we see in the natural human being apart from the form, when we work on a sculptural work of art to form a human being. But I believe that the sculptor who sculpts human beings will eventually rise to a very particular feeling, and I have no doubt that the Greek sculptor had the feeling of which I am now speaking, and that it was only in the naturalistic era that this feeling was lost. It seems to me that a sculptor has a very different kind of feeling when he forms a head than when he forms the rest of the body. These two things are actually fundamentally different from one another when they are worked on, forming the head sculpturally and forming the rest of the body sculpturally. If I may be allowed to express myself somewhat drastically, I might say, when we work on forming the human head sculpturally, we have the feeling that we are continually being absorbed by the material, that the material wants to pull us in. But when we work sculpturally on the rest of the human body, then we feel we are unjustifiably poking into the body all over, pressing into it, that we push from the outside in. We have the feeling that we form the rest of the body from the outside, shape the forms from the outside. When forming the body we feel we are working inward, when forming the head we feel we are working outward. It seems to me that this feeling is particular to sculptural formation, that it certainly still belonged to the Greek artist, and that it was lost only in the naturalistic era in which we have begun to be slaves to the model. We might ask ourselves, what is the source of just such a feeling? when we intend to fashion the human form out of a supra-sensory orientation. All of this is connected to much deeper questions, and there is one more thing I would like to mention before moving on. Just think of how, as regards sculpture and architecture, we have the feeling of a particular inner experience, even though sculpture and architecture seem to shape outer material outwardly. As regards architecture we experience the dynamic inwardly. We experience inwardly how the column creates the beam, how the column develops into the capital. We experience inwardly what is outwardly formed. And the case is similar as regards sculpture. This is not the case with music, and certainly not with poetry. It seems to me that in the case of poetry it is obvious that in forming the poetic material... It is like this, let me express it drastically again, it is as if when we begin to form the words, which we must retain in our larynx when speaking prose, into iams or trochees, when we rhyme with these, they would run away and we would have to run after them. They populate the atmosphere surrounding us more than what is inward. We experience poetry as much more outward than, for example, architecture and sculpture. And this is, no doubt, how it is with music when we direct our feelings toward it. Musical tones also enliven the entire surroundings. We actually forget space and time, or at least space, and we live outside of ourselves in moral experience. We do not have the feeling, as we do with poetry, that we must run after the forms we create, but we have the feeling that we must swim into a vague element that spreads itself out everywhere and that we dissolve in this swimming. There, you see, we begin to perceive nuances in the entire being of art. We ascribe very particular characteristics to these perceptions. What I have just described for you, which is something that I believe a subtle artistic feeling can sympathize with, cannot be believed when we look at a crystal or some other mineral product of nature or a plant or an animal or a real physical human being. We perceive and feel all of outer physical sensory nature differently than the perception and feeling that I have just now described in relation to individual branches of artistic experience. We can speak of suprasensory knowledge as a transformation of ordinary abstract knowledge into a clairvoyant knowing and can direct attention to an experiential knowing. It is absurd to demand that we prove things in higher realms in the same logical, pedantic, philistine manner, that we prove things in natural science or mathematics, and so forth. If we live into the perceptions and feelings that arise when we enter artistic realms, then eventually we enter into strange inner soul conditions. Very definitely nuanced soul conditions arise when we really experience sculpture or architecture inwardly when we accompany the dynamic, the mechanics, and so forth of architecture, when we accompany the curvature of form in sculpture. A remarkable path comes about there for the inner world of feelings. Here we move in response to a soul experience in a way that is very similar to memory. Whoever experiences remembering, whoever has the experience of memory, notices how the perception of the architecture and sculpture becomes similar to the inner process of remembering. But, yet again, the remembering is on a higher level. In other words, we gradually approach, along the paths of architectural and sculptural feeling, that soul perception, which the spiritual researcher knows as the recollection of pre-birth conditions. And, indeed, the way we live between death and a new birth in relationship to the whole cosmos, and so far as we feel how we move as a soul-spirit or spirit-soul in many directions, how we interact with beings, how we attain balance in the presence of other beings, everything we thus experience and perceive between death and a new birth, this is, in fact, unconsciously remembered and then reproduced in the art of architecture and sculpture. And if we inwardly accompany this peculiarity as regards sculpture and architecture, then we discover that we actually want nothing other in this sculpture and architecture than to conjure into the physical sense world the experiences we had in the spiritual world before our birth, before our conception. If we do not build houses strictly according to the principle of utility and instead build houses that are architecturally beautiful then we shape the dynamic conditions as they arise in our memory of experiences, experiences of balance, of oscillation and so forth that we had in the time between death and this birth. And we thereby discover how the human being actually came to develop architecture and sculpture into art forms. The experience between death and a new birth stirred in his soul. He wanted to bring it out and place it before himself somehow. And so he created architecture, and he created sculpture. That humanity brought forth architecture and sculptures, part of its cultural development, is essentially the result of the after-effects of life between death and birth, which the human being wants to put forward out of his inner life. Just as the spider spins its web, so does the human being produce and shape what he experiences between death and rebirth he carries these pre-birth experiences into physical sensory life and what we see before us when we survey the architectural and sculptural artworks of humanity is nothing other than the realization of unconscious memories of life between death and a new birth now we have a real answer to the question why does the human being create form? If the human being were not a supra-sensory being who comes into this life through conception, through birth, he would most certainly not pursue sculpture, and he would most certainly not pursue architecture. And we know what sort of curious connections exist between two, or let us say three, successive earth lives, The head you have today is, in the forces of its form, the remodeled, headless body of the former incarnation. And the body you have today will remodel itself into your head before your next incarnation. The head of the human being has a very different meaning. It is old. It is the transformed previous life. The forces we experienced between the previous death and this birth formed the outer shape of the head, the body carries in germinal state the forces that in the next earth life will come into form. There you have the reason why the sculptor experiences the head differently from the rest of the body. As regards the body, he feels something like this. The head wants to absorb him because the head is formed through forces from the previous incarnation that rest in his current form. As regards the rest of the body, He feels something like this. He wants to go into it, press into it, and so forth by sculpturally forming it, because in it rests the spiritual forces that lead through death and over into the next incarnation. This radical difference between the past and future in the human body is what the sculptor senses especially clearly. Whatever consists of the formative forces of the physical body, what they carry over from incarnation to incarnation, is what comes to expression in sculpture. Whatever sits more deeply in the etheric body, which bears our sense of balance, is the carrier of our dynamic. This comes to expression more in the art of architecture. You see, we can hardly grasp human life in its entirety, If we do not look at the suprasensory life, if we do not earnestly consider the question how do we come to form architecture and sculpture, people do not want to look at the suprasensory world because they do not want to look at the things of this world in the proper way. How do most people, in essence, face the arts that reveal a spiritual world, in fact, like a dog in the presence of human language? The dog hears the human language and presumably takes it to be barking. He does not hear what is in the sounds as meaning, unless he happens to be Mannheimer Rolf. This was a docile dog who caused a sensation some time ago among people who concern themselves with such useless arts. That is how a human being faces the arts that actually speak of the supersensory world we have experienced. Namely, he does not see in these arts what these arts actually reveal. Let us look, for example, at the art of poetry. For someone who can feel what poetry is, it becomes clear that poetry really stems from the entire human being. Only we must keep in mind when characterizing such things that with some variation, Lichtenberg's words apply, namely that 99% more poetry is written than humanity needs for its fortunes. And none of it is actually real art. And what does real poetry do? It does not stick with prose, but forms prose, brings pacing and rhythm into prose. It fashions something that the prosaic pedant simply finds superfluous for life. It further forms something that, even unformed, would provide the meaning we would connect with it. If, in listening to a truly artistic recitation, we obtain a feeling for what the poet has extracted from the prose content, then we arrive again at the unique character of the feelings. After all, we cannot perceive only the content, the prosaic content of a poem, as the poem. Rather, we perceive the way the words roll along in iambs and trochies or anapests, how the sounds are repeated through alliteration, assonance, or rhyme. We perceive much more that lies in the how of the structure of the prosaic material. That after all is what must go into the recitation. If in recitation we merely emphasize the prose content, even if ever so seemingly profoundly, then we think we are reciting artistically in quotes. But if we can really retain these peculiarities of nuanced feeling, which include the feeling for what is poetic, then we conclude for ourselves that this actually goes beyond ordinary perception. For ordinary perception clings to sense-perceptible things. Poetic composition does not cling to the things of sensory existence. Earlier on I expressed it by saying what is composed poetically then lives more in the atmosphere that surrounds us. We are inclined to rush out of ourselves so as to actually experience the words of the poet properly outside of ourselves. That is because we compose something out of ourselves that we cannot experience at all between birth and death. We compose something out of the soul substance that if we want merely to live between birth and death we can just as easily avoid. We can quite easily live and die without doing anything other than making dry prosaic content the content of our life. But why do we experience the desire to add extra rhythm and assonance and alliteration and rhyme to this dry prosaic content? Well, because we have more in ourselves than is needed in life before death, because we want already during life to give shape to what is more than is needed in life before birth. It is anticipation of the life that follows death. We are pressed not just to talk, but to talk poetically, because we already carry what follows after death within ourselves. And just as sculpture and architecture are related to life before birth, with the forces that are in us from before birth, so poetry is connected with life as it unfolds after death or rather, with the forces that are already in us for life after death. And it is more the I capital, as it lives here between birth and death, as it goes to the portal of death and then lives on, that already carries in itself the forces expressed in poetry. And it is the astral body, which already lives here in the world of tone, which forms melody and harmony out of this world of tone, that we do not find in the outer physical world, for what the astral body experiences after death is already carried in the astral body. You know that this astral body that we carry in ourselves continues to live for only a while after death, then we put it aside. Nevertheless, this astral body actually contains a musical element, but it contains it in the same way that it experiences it it here between birth and death in its life element, the air. We need the air if we want to have a medium for musical experience. When we have reached the stage after death in which we discard our astral body, then we also discard everything of a musical nature that reminds us of this earth life. But in this cosmic moment, musicality is transformed into the music of the spheres. We become independent of what we experience musically in the air and raise ourselves up to live a musicality that is the music of the spheres. For what is experienced here as music in the air is the music of the spheres above. And now the reflection works its way into the element of the air, becomes denser, becomes that which we experience as earthly music which we imprint into our astral body, which we shape, which we relive as long as we still have our astral body. After death we put aside our astral body. Then, forgive the banal expression, what is musical in us jumps up into the music of the spheres. Thus, in music and poetry, we have a preview of what our world is after death, what our existence is. We experience what is supra-sensory in two directions. In this way do these four arts stand before us. And painting. There is another spiritual world that lies beyond our sense world. The crudely materialistic physicist or biologist speaks of atoms and molecules underlying the sense world. There are no molecules and atoms. There are spiritual beings underlying them. A world of spirit is there, the world in which we live between going to sleep and waking up. This world which we bring back out of sleep is the one that actually fuels us when we paint, so that we are at all able to bring the spatial world surrounding us onto the canvas or the wall. Therefore, when painting, we must be very mindful of painting out of the color and not out of the line, for in painting, the line deceives. The line is always something of the memory of pre-earthly life. To paint in a consciousness broadened to include the spiritual world, we must paint what comes out of the color, and we know that color is experienced in the astral world. When we enter the world in which we live, between going to sleep and waking up, we experience this realm of color and how we want to create a harmony of colors, how we bring the colors onto the canvas. This is nothing other than what presses us. Thus we press, we let flow into our body what we experience between going to sleep and waking up. That is within us, and that is what we want to bring onto the canvas in painting. What we encounter through painting is a reproduction of the supersensory. The arts actually indicate the suprasensory everywhere. For someone who can perceive painting in the right way, it becomes a revelation of the spiritual world that surrounds us in space and penetrates us from space, the world in which we find ourselves between going to sleep and awakening. Sculpture and architecture become witnesses for the spiritual world we live in between death and a new birth, before conception, before birth. Music and poetry are witnesses of how we live post-mortem, after death. In this way, what constitutes our portion of the spiritual world penetrates into our ordinary physical earth life. And if we look at what the human being places into life, through the arts, in a banal way, as related only to what happens between birth and death, then we actually rob artistic creativity of all meaning. For artistic creativity is definitely a matter of carrying spiritual suprasensory worlds into the physical sensory world. And only because the human being is pressed by what he carries within himself out of his pre-earthly life, because he is pressed when awake by what he carries out of his suprasensory life when he sleeps, because he is pressed by what is already in him And wants to shape him after death? Does he place architecture, sculpture, painting, music, and poetry into the world of sensory experience? The reason people do not usually speak about supersensory worlds is simply because they do not understand the sensory, and above all, because they do not even understand what once was known by spiritual human culture, but has since been lost. It has become outer convention, art. Once we learn to understand art, we have real proof for human immortality and for the human being's unbornness. And this is what we need so that consciousness broadens beyond the horizon that is limited by birth and death, so that we relate what we have within ourselves in our physical earth life with the supra-physical life. If we work to recognize the spiritual world, to imagine the spiritual world, to take it up into thinking, into feeling, into perception, and into willing, out of a knowledge that addresses it directly as spiritual science does, then there will be fertile ground for an art that combines, so to speak, what comes from pre-birth with what comes after death. Let us therefore consider you with me. The human body itself is brought into movement. What is brought into movement? We bring the human organism into movement so that the limbs move. The extremities are what mainly continue to live in the following earth life, which points toward the future, the after death. But how, then, do we form what we present as movement of the limbs in eurythmy? We study in a sensory, supersensory manner How, out of the head, through intellectual capacities, and through the tendencies of feeling in the chest, the larynx and the entire speech organ has been formed out of the previous life. We connect pre-birth existence directly with after-death existence. We take, so to speak, from earthly life only that which is physical material, namely the human being himself, who is the tool, the instrument for eurythmy. In Eurythmy we furnish a form and movement of the human organism such that it is the immediate outer proof of the human being's presence in the suprasensory world. When we let the human being do Eurythmy, we connect him directly to the suprasensory world. Wherever art is shaped out of a truly artistic attitude, it is the witness for the connection between the human being and the suprasensory world. And when the human being of the present day is called upon to take the gods into his own soul forces, so to speak, so that he does not merely wait devoutly for the gods to bring him this or that, but instead wants to act as if the gods lived in his active will, then the moment has come, if human beings want to experience it, in which the human being must proceed from the objectively shaped arts to an art which will take on quite different dimensions and forms in the future, to an art that represents the suprasensory directly. How can it be any other way? Spiritual science also wants to represent the suprasensory directly, so it must, in a manner of speaking, also create such an art out of itself. And the application of pedagogy will, bit by bit, educate human beings who through this education find their way toward taking for granted that they are suprasensory beings because they move their hands their arms their legs in such a way that forces of the suprasensory world are active within them. It is after all the soul of the human being, the suprasensory soul, that goes over into movement in Eurythmy. Everything that is brought through spiritual science really is in agreement inwardly. On the one hand, it is brought so that the life within which we stand can be penetrated more deeply, more intensively, so that we can learn to direct our gaze to the living proofs that exist for being unborn and for being immortal. And on the other hand, the supersensory element of the human being is placed into the human being. That is the inner consequence that underlies spiritual scientific striving when it has an anthroposophical orientation. Spiritual science will thereby broaden human consciousness. A human being will no longer be able to go through the world as he did in the materialistic age, having actually only an overview of what happens between birth and death having perhaps a belief in something or the other that exists apart from his life, something that blesses him, redeems him, but that he cannot picture at all, that he always accepts as sentimental preaching, and of which he actually retains merely empty content. Spiritual science is to provide the human being once again with true content of the spiritual world. People are to be redeemed from living in abstraction, from that life which merely wants to remain stalled at perception, at thinking between birth and death, and which at most takes up in words some sort of nebulous indication of a suprasensory world. Spiritual science will bring a consciousness into the human being that will widen his horizon, and through which, as he lives and acts here in the physical world, he will perceive the suprasensory world, it is true that today we go through the world when we are 30 years old and know that what we are at 30 was instilled in us at age 10 or 15. We remember that. We remember when we read a book at age 30 that the fact that we learned to read 22 or 23 years ago is connected with the current moment. But we do not pay attention to the fact that at every moment between birth and death, what we live through between the last death and this birth vibrates in us, pulses in us. Let us look at what is born in architecture and sculpture from out of these forces. If we understand this in the right way, then we will also be able to carry it over into life in the right way. And we will also achieve once again a feeling for what is superfluous, for Philistine prosaic life namely the shaping of prose into rhythm and meter and rhyme, into alliteration and assonance in poetry. Then we will relate these nuances of feeling with the immortal kernel of our being that we carry through death. We will say no human being could become a poet were it not for the fact that every human being harbors what actually creates within the poet, namely the force that only becomes outwardly alive after death, but that is already in us. This is the integration of the supersensory into ordinary consciousness, which must expand once more if humanity does not wish to sink more deeply into the realm into which it has been brought, through the fact that consciousness has so greatly condensed and actually only lives in what plays itself out between birth and death. And at best, only preaches empty words about what is present in the supersensory world. You see, we arrive everywhere at spiritual science when we speak of the most important cultural needs of the present. The end of Lecture 11.7